Hey, it's Tuesday. You know what that means. It's time for the best and brightest moment of your week. It's time for that show you love and that show that you seek. It's time for nonsense. 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 The show. The best damn show you know. The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Under 17, not admitted without parent. gentlemen welcome to nonsense the show episode 306 the real mccoy ozzy osborne and a whole lot of pirates stay tuned for this crazy train Yeah. 
Ladies and gentlemen, starting things off tonight with the immortal Prince of Darkness himself, Ozzy freaking Osborne. This is Nonsense the Show. My name is Captain Nick. This is episode 306, an episode I am entitling Rock Stars and Rebels. Tonight, we have essentially a piratical-themed episode of Nonsense the Show. I hope you're ready. I know I sure am. What the hell are we going to talk about tonight? Starting things off, I'm going to tell you the origin of a phrase that I'm sure you know and I'm sure you've said at least once in your life, but maybe never put any more thought into it than that. Tonight, I'm going to tell you all about the real McCoy. William Bill McCoy, the notorious rum runner and smuggler. Truly a pirate of his time. We're going to talk about him in segment number one. Then we are going to talk about a music legends segment. I'm going to tell you a little about about. Mm. <laughs> we are early in the show and the words are already hard. I got a brand new bottle of rum in a pirate themed episode. You didn't think I wasn't going to warm up a little bit, right? Sip a rum for nonsense. The show. Hmm. <clears throat> Oh, it burns so good. Uh, we have a Music Legends segment where I'm going to tell you about the infamous 1984 Bark at the Moon tour. What happens when you put the Prince of Darkness, Ozzy Osbourne, in, uh, on a world tour with the bad boys of metal? That's right. Well, hair metal. We're going to talk about Motley Crue and Ozzy Osbourne together and what kind of ridiculous, obscene, and disgusting antics did they get up to on that tour. Plus, I'll tell you a little bit of the truth behind the legend of a few of Ozzy's most famous stories. Following that, we'll talk about one of the greatest pirates that ever lived. Very likely, one, uh, very likely the most successful financially uh, uh, pirate of all times. A Chinese pirate who goes by the name of Xing Chi. She had an absolute pirate empire, and I cannot wait to tell you all about it. After that, we'll dive into uh, entry number 41 in the Captain's Film Institute Film of the Week. Tonight, as is only appropriate when you think about our subject matter, we are going to talk about the Gore Verbinski-directed Johnny Depp, Orlando Bloom, Kieran Knightley, Jeffrey Rush, the beginning of an incredible series, that's right, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, one of the greatest pirate movies ever made. Um, it's going to be a really fun episode tonight. Um, as I was prepping for this show, I, uh, of course, was diving into the piratical world, which I have not really been into in the last couple of years. It's, you know, stuff I'm interested in, stuff I read about, but uh, there's a lot of memories from my time as Captain Nick over the last 10 years or so. Uh, one of the memories, especially as it relates to podcasting, is my very first show. Those of you that have been around for a while will remember the uh, terrible audio quality and terrible planning, but uh, debaucherous fun of pirate radio. There was an, uh, an intro to that song. Now, at the time, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I, I'm all self-taught with audio recording and audio editing and all of the, uh, the, the hardware and the software and the skill sets and all of that. So early on, I didn't know how to make my own theme music, so I just did what I could. So as I was looking for music for Nonsense the Show tonight, I actually came across uh, the theme song for pirate radio. Well, let me see if I can recreate it for you here tonight. Are you ready for this? Here we go. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is pirate radio. Oh, shit! Takes me back to my tiny house. Sitting there six beers deep, firing up the microphone with Toby the Wonder Mutt under my feet. 
talking about whatever, uh, whatever, and whenever. Improvising an hour-long show every single week for several episodes in a row. That was the birth of my podcasting career, something I had dreamed about since I was a kid, being a radio DJ. It's just too bad that's not really a viable career choice anymore. Um, so yeah, that was Pirate Radio. I think those episodes are still available somewhere. I haven't listened to them since I posted them. I'm actually a little bit afraid to go back and listen to them. So if you find them and you decide to listen to them, let me know what you think. Uh, you can probably find them on your favorite podcast platform. Certainly you can find them on uh, Apple Podcasts. Okay, talked about that. Boom. Nope, that's not what we did. There we go. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's go ahead and settle in here. Mm, sip of rum for getting the show going. Here we go. Yummy, yummy, yummy. I got rum in my tummy. Let's dive in to the very first segment of tonight's show, the origin of a phrase that you know and you have heard, but maybe you don't fully understand. When you call something the real McCoy, you are saying it is authentic. It is, uh, it is legitimate. It is what it purports to be. Where did that come from? Who was the real McCoy? Well, I'm about to tell you. As a non-drinker, William Bill McCoy disagreed with prohibition and rationalized his career by remarking, Americans, since the beginnings of this nation, have always kicked holes in the laws they resented. But disregard for the law wasn't his only motivation. Lucrative monetary rewards also enticed the man. McCoy's first shipment from the Bahamas to Savannah, Georgia in 1921 brought him $15,000. Realizing the potential for growth in the alcohol smuggling business, McCoy bought a ship, the 130-foot-long Arethusa. To accommodate as much contraband as she could hold, her fish pins were retrofitted, and to assist in her speed, McCoy installed a larger auxiliary motor. He also mounted a concealed machine gun on the bow. At this point, you have a ship with armament uh, set for the smuggling of illicit goods. This man is already a pirate. When outfitted, she hauled Irish and Canadian whiskey as well as other fine liquors and wines up the East Coast from Florida to Maine. Sailing her north to New York, McCoy realized by anchoring just offshore, he could let contact boats, local fishermen and small boat captains, carry the illegal cargo to shore. Being small and quick, the boats could easily outrun the Coast Guard, maneuver through eddies, and transfer their cargo to waiting trucks with local law enforcement. None the wiser. McCoy simply collected payment while eliminating all of the risk. This was the start of the notorious Rum Row, a prohibition phenomenon that included hundreds of boats selling illegal liquor anchored along the eastern seaboard, off Florida and into the, ghost of, uh, the Gulf of Mexico. Rum Row soon, as you might expect, became very competitive. Suppliers often flew large banners enticing buyers with wild parties and even prostitutes. In time, any remaining civility gave way to lawlessness. Soon, crews armed themselves to ward off other rum runners who would hijack cargo and sink ships rather than making the run themselves to Canada or the Caribbean. While McCoy was making tons of money, he was also spending it. With the success of his first ventures and figuring he could double his profits, he hired another captain to sail a ship called the Henry L. Marshall. Unfortunately, this ship drifted into U.S. waters, and in August 1922, the United States Coast Guard seized it. As its owner, McCoy was indicted, but to avoid arrest, he hightailed it to Nassau in the Bahamas. Now a wanted man, McCoy reasoned it was safer for him to remain in Nassau. He placed the Arethusa under British registry and renamed her Tomoka. He also registered her with French 
uh, with the French under the name Marie Celeste, a move made by many American ship owners as protection against seizure. Since the Coast Guard wasn't allowed to board a vessel registered under a foreign country unless it wandered into U.S. territorial waters. Next, he added two more ships to his fleet and hired captains to sail them, but the inexperienced crew brought great trouble. One ship was seized, and several months later, the other was severely damaged in a collision. Sapped by the lost revenues, McCoy found himself on the verge of bankruptcy. To remedy the situation, he stacked uh, the Tomoka with only a half-load of contraband liquor and sailed for New Jersey. Eager buyers snapped up the cargo in just two days, which solved his urgent cash flow problem. Over the next few months, he made several more trips, and by the spring of 1923, his reputation as a leading rum-runner was restored. Specializing in buying only high-quality whiskey, which he never cut, and having a reputation for fair dealing, the phrase, the real McCoy, a phrase that stands today as a reference to the authentic article, became synonymous with his name. You sell good product. We know we can count on you. You're a man of your word. You are the real McCoy. With cases containing 12 bottles of liquor being hard to handle, he is also credited with inventing the burlock. Six straw-wrapped bottles, three on the bottom, then two, then one, sewn tightly into a burlap bag. Known to the Coast Guard as sacks, they were commonly called hams among the rummies. In his last run of 1923 on one November night, McCoy was six and a half miles off of Seabright, New Jersey, aboard the Tomoka and unloading the last of his cargo when the Coast Guard cutter Seneca hailed his ship. While there is some discrepancy between McCoy's account of what happened next and that of the Coast Guard, Rumors at Sea gave this description. Agents, in cooperation with the Coast Guard, put into effect without warning the principle of search and seizure beyond the three-mile limit, realizing the likelihood of legal complications. The Cutter Seneca arrived near Tomoka at daybreak and found the schooner riding placidly at anchor. The ship was first boarded by agents, and as soon as they were on board, a fistfight developed in which all hands took part. The agents, though badly beaten up, were able to search her and found 200 cases of whiskey, remaining from an original cargo of 4,200. Then, Tomoka got underway with the agents on board. Seneca ordered her to stop. When she disregarded this, the cutter sent two shots screaming across her bows with the desired result. She was then boarded by a larger group of Coast Guardsmen from Seneca and seized. So he gets confronted by the Coast Guard. He gets boarded. A fistfight ensues in which the entire crew is battling on the decks of the ship. And then he decides, let's get underway. If we get these guys away from their mothership, they're going to be much easier to defeat. And so he tries to kidnap a crew of Coast Guardsmen. That is one ballsy pirate. The real McCoy's rum-running days were over. And while Britain later protested the seizure, it was held valid and Tomoka was auctioned off just two years later. McCoy remained free on bail until 1925 when he served nine months in jail. But a sympathetic warden allowed him to spend most of his time in a hotel where he was free to come and go as he pleased. Upon release, he found that big syndicate competition was too much for him, so he sold his ships and retired to Florida. He claimed legal fees ate up most of his savings, but he lived comfortably and never had to work again. McCoy died of a heart attack from complications of food poisoning upon his boat, the Blue Lagoon, in Stewart, Florida, on December 30th, 1948. He was 71. 
Prior to, uh, prior to his death, McCoy commented on his rum runner days. There was all the kick of gambling and the thrill of sport. And besides, uh, besides these, there was the open sea and the boom of the wind against full sails, dawn coming out of the ocean and nights under the rocking stars. These caught me and held me most of all. That was a modern-day pirate who did his business and did it well. Sip a rum for the real McCoy. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's see what we're doing next here, huh? Let's see what we're doing next. Let's go ahead and dive into this week's edition of the Schmoop Song. Uh, the Schmoop Song, of course, is a, uh, a tune selected by my beautiful girlfriend, Maggie. Hey, Maggie, how you doing? Um, this is one I'm actually kind of excited about. Let me just go ahead and dig it up here. It's a song called All That and More by a band that has maybe the greatest band name in the history of music. It's called Rainbow Kitten Surprise. <laughs> Hope you guys enjoy. See you on the other side of this musical break. Sailboat captain at sea We don't give a damn We do as we please My baby's a sailboat captain at sea My gal is a good one Tells me she's fine Wish I was better looking Baby don't mind My gal is a good one Tells me she's fine All I ever wanted Was to make you happy Give you a truth Anything to make you love me Any more than you do My baby's a silver captain at sea We don't give a damn we do as we please My baby's a silver captain at sea My gal is a good one Tell so she's mine This shot's been looking Baby, don't mind My gal is a good one Tell so she's my baby's a saint just like an old George Good with a dagger, skilled with a sword All bushes out She's all and more All I ever wanted is to make you happy Spit it all out Anything to make me love you Yeah, that's how I do now But you were in my head We were in your bed You said, you said yeah, I'm so fucking sorry for Lord knows she goes, she's gone. Say you don't mean that. Lord knows she goes, she's gone. Say you don't mean that. Silver captain at sea. We don't give a damn. We do as we please. 
That was Rainbow Kitten Surprise. Hope you guys enjoyed that. That was a, a beautiful, melodic, soothing, and lovely, lovely song. And with that mindset, we are going to dive right into the next segment of the show in our Great Music Moments series. Uh, this totally fits the theme of the song we just did. No, it doesn't. Not at all. This is the Bark at the Moon Tour. What do you get when you put the Prince of Darkness and Motley Crue on the same tour at the peak of their legendarily debauchous and prolific party power? Well, you get the Bark at the Moon Tour. The billing of Ozzy Osbourne and Motley Crue in 1984 was always going to be a hot ticket. Anticipation of a road trip brimming with rock and roll excess was high. But no one could have predicted what and how much of it was going to go down when the tour started in January 1984. Ozzy Osbourne hadn't really stopped spiraling out of control since his booze and drugs issues had gotten him fired from Black Sabbath five years earlier. His first two solo albums had put him back on the map musically, but the death of guitarist Randy Rhodes in 1982 had shaken the singer to the core. He didn't want to keep going, but his wife and manager Sharon Osbourne believed it would be worse for him if he stopped. So here he was, with a new album, Bark at the Moon, to promote. Crew were moving out of their rising star stage and into their big deal stage, and their second LP, Shout at the Devil, was about to go gold, and then platinum, during the tour's run. Brimming with confidence and cash, they were ready to take on the Prince of Darkness at his own game. The parties met during a sound check at Cumberland County Civic Center in Portland, Maine, on January 10th. And from almost the get to it, uh, from almost the get, it became one big party. Sensing partners in crime, Osborne all but moved into Crew's tour bus starting that first night, and between them, they began generating a chain of legendary anecdotes. The most celebrated moment is recalled in Crew's 2001 memoir, The Dirt, when bassist Nicky Six found himself challenging Osborne, who'd run out of cocaine and was wearing a women's dress, to snort ants instead. In Six's own words, I handed him the straw and he walked over to a crack in the sidewalk and he bent over it. I saw a long column of ants and as I thought, no, he wouldn't. He did. He put the straw to his nose and with his bare white ass peeking out from under the dress like a sliced honeydew, he sent the entire line of ants tickling up his nose with a single monstrous snort. But of course this is Ozzy Osbourne and Motley Crue. Worse was of course to come. Then, Ozzy hiked up the sun jest, grabbed his dick, and pissed on the pavement. Without even looking at his growing audience, he knelt down, and getting the dress soggy in the puddle, he lapped it up. He didn't just flick it with his tongue, he took a half a dozen long, lingering, and thorough strokes, like a cat. Then he stood up, and eyes blazing and mouth wet with urine, looked straight at me, and he said, Do that, six. So clearly, a rock and roll rivalry was forming. Recalling, quote, peer pressure that I could not refuse, Six took his turn to urinate in public. But Osborne got to the urine first and began licking. I threw up my hands, Six said. You win. He later commented that the band didn't know whether Osborne's antics were evidence of a wicked sense of humor or a severe case of schizophrenia. In yet another outlandish episode, crew drummer Tommy Lee was in a hotel room with Osborne, who defecated on the floor and then used the feces to redecorate the room. 
In 2011, Tommy described it. He starts smearing shit all over the walls. He's, he's painting with it. And I thought, well, this is some next level shit. I'm, I'm not ready for this. I'm, I'm cool with just taking a shit in the toilet. <laughs> a series of further reported but unconfirmed events included the time Osborne, Lee, and Vince Neal were arrested after lying drunk on a freeway. And another time when Neil and Osborne stole a car before trashing it and abandoning it. Plus, Tommy Lee is said to have punched a fan who gave him the news that his girlfriend was the centerfold in the latest edition of Playboy. And later, Neil's gold and platinum discs were smashed by his girlfriend, who'd seen a picture of him cavorting with another woman. Meanwhile, Nikki Six was advised to seek addiction counseling after falling out of a plane and smashing his discs and a bottle of whiskey in front of actress Demi Moore. On the last night of the tour, Osborne's band attempted to sabotage Crew's set with flour and custard bombs. Motley Crue retaliated with similar missile attacks and by flashing the audience. Meanwhile, Osborne's guitarist, Jake E. Lee, had lived through a memorable time for different reasons. Hired after Rhodes' death, he was constantly taking flack from angry fans. I got a lot of support, but I also had a lot of Randy Rhodes rules, you suck, he said in 2013. Randy's gone, and it's not like he's gone to go play in some other band. He's just gone. So either you guys want Ozzy to hang up his coat and call it quits, or cut me a little slack. But all the way through Ozzy, there was always a faction of you suck, Randy rules. Lee remembered receiving angry calls to his hotel room before he learned the trick of checking in with a false name. Some guy would find out what room I was in and go, you suck, I should have gotten the gig. And then he'd start playing guitar over the phone to me. I never really got to respond to any of them, which is what really pissed me off. <laughs> Speaking in 2010 on the occasion of Osborne and crew hitting the road together again, Nikki Six recalled the 1984 experience as, quote, a blast and some of the best times of my life. Osborne remembered that every night there was something crazier than the night before. I remember being arrested for being drunk and disorderly in a public place. I came out of the jail at 7 in the morning and crew were all waiting outside with the bus. Come on, Oz. It just carried on. <laughs> Now, as I was writing this story, really the whole idea was to focus on Ozzy, and of course Crew is there, and they do all kinds of crazy things. And I thought it would be nice to talk a little bit about some of the more famous Ozzy Osbourne stories. There's one in particular that I think is, is very important that we discuss. This is what I'm calling the bonus part of this segment. When Ozzy Osbourne dies, hopefully several decades from now, his obituary will touch on a great many things. It'll focus on the pivotal role he played in the creation of heavy metal as a member of Black Sabbath, the brilliant music he made with guitarist Randy Rhodes in the early 80s, his battles with substance abuse, and how his MTV show The Osbournes helped launch a new era of reality television. But right now, here on Nonsense the Show, it's time to set the record straight on the most famous Ozzy Osbourne legend of all. Biting the heads off of small winged creatures. Rock and roll legend says that he has officially chomped down on three of them. Two doves and one bat. Let's start with the first victims, the Doves. The year was 1981. Osborne's solo career following his departure from Black Sabbath was beginning to thrive. The classic rocker and his wife-slash-manager Sharon decided to pull a fun stunt at CBS Records' executive meeting in Los Angeles. Ozzy carried two Doves into the room under his coat. The plan was that he would release them into the air at an appropriately celebratory moment. 
But then, as Ozzy later told a journalist, it was this board meeting and I started getting bored. So to liven the atmosphere and alleviate his boredom, he pulled out one of the doves and bit its head off. And then, after waiting a few moments to let his actions sink in for the room, he did the same thing with the second dove. Needless to say, the record executives were not amused. The following year, on January 20th, 1982, there was the infamous incident at the Des Moines Veterans Memorial Auditorium where he bit the head off of a live bat during a concert. The unfortunate episode, which occurred just over 40 years ago, lasted just a few seconds, but it generated news around the world and the lingering effect that still exists today. Osborne had been on the road for well over a year when he arrived in Des Moines for the infamous show. During that time, he developed a ritual where he'd pummel the audience with raw meat and they'd chuck back whatever insane things they could sneak into the venues. I always liked old movies that used to have these uh, custard pie fights, Osborne explained in the documentary The Nine Lives of Ozzy Osborne. It gave me this idea to throw instead of pie bits of meat and animal parts into the audience. I thought it was hilarious. You know, they'd throw back sheep testicles, live snakes, dead rats, all, all kinds of things. Someone once threw a live frog onto stage. It was the biggest frog I'd ever seen, and it landed on its back. <laughs> Something about that last sentence just feels very childlike to me. Someone threw a live frog once. It was really big, and it landed right on its back. <laughs> I almost dropped my rum glass. That would have been fucking terrible, you guys. Back to the story. That night in Des Moines, someone threw a live bat. I thought it was a rubber bat, Osborne said. I picked it up, put it in my mouth, crunched down, bit into it, being the clown that I am. The consistency of the bat immediately indicated to Osborne that he had misjudged the situation. It was crunchy, Ozzy later told a reporter. In his memoirs, I Am Ozzy, he went into further detail. Immediately, though, something felt wrong, very wrong. For a start, my mouth was instantly full of this warm, gloopy liquid, with the worst aftertaste you could ever imagine. I could feel it staining my teeth and running down my chin. As blood filled his mouth and people in the crowd looked on with horror, he realized he had made a horrible mistake. Bats are the biggest carriers of rabies in the world, he said, and I had to go to the hospital afterwards and they started giving me rabies shots. I had one each rear, and I had to have that every single night. <laughs> The Des Moines bat thrower has never come forward publicly, but whoever was responsible gave Osborne just about more press attention than he had ever received in his life. He followed that up by, of course, urinating on the Alamo just a few weeks later when the tour went down to San Antonio, Texas. He was hauled off to jail for that one and banned from playing in the city for the next decade. It got to the point where people expected me to do crazier and crazier things, he said. I'll tell you what, guys. It ain't fun when you get them rabies shots. <laughs> so that is the story of the Bark at the Moon tour and just a little bit of truth behind some of Ozzy Osbourne's most infamous moments. All right, my friends. Let's see what we got going on here. I'm pretty light on music tonight, so we're just going to dive right into the next story. How do you feel about that? It doesn't matter. I can't hear you anyway. You're listening to this after I record it, so we're doing it whether, whether you want to or not. 
As regular listeners or, uh, listeners of Nonsense, the show will be able to tell you segment number three of the show is always what I call the main event segment. This is the headline story of the episode. We're going to dive in tonight to an entry into the Great Pirates series. This is the story of Ching Shi, the most successful pirate in history. At the dawn of the 19th century, a former prostitute from a floating brothel in the city of Canton was wed to a man called Chang I, a fearsome pirate from a storied pirate lineage who operated in the South China Sea in the Qing Dynasty. A year after their marriage in February 1802, Chang's cousin was captured and executed by wind forces in the town of Jinping, on the border of Vietnam and China. Chang quickly took over his cousin's fleet after his death and sailed back to the Chinese coast. What followed was a period of infighting among the pirates near the Guangdong coast, but with the help of Ching Shi, who was a capable consolidator and organizer, Chang was able to unite the pirates into a confederation through the signing of an agreement in July 1805 in which each pirate leader agreed to sacrifice some of his autonomy for the greater good. The confederation consisted of six fleets known by the color of their flags, red, black, blue, white, yellow, and purple. Chang commanded the biggest fleet in the confederation, the Red Flag Fleet. Though the name under which we now know this fearsome female pirate, Ching Shi, simply means Chang's widow, the legacy she left behind far exceeds that of her husband. Follow, ooh, mm, there we go. Following his death, she succeeded him and commanded a fleet of over 1,800 pirate ships, an estimated force of 80,000 men. This was a true pirate army. Just to give you a little bit of a comparison. The famed pirate Blackbeard commanded four ships and 300 pirates within the same century as Ching Shi. As a result, Ching Shi is known as one of the most successful pirates in known history. Let's go ahead and just put those numbers into context one more time. Blackbeard, the famed and feared Blackbeard, four ships, 300 pirates. Ching Shi, 1,800 ships and 80,000 men. I mean, that's the difference between a millionaire and a billionaire at that point. It's not even comparable. Her husband, Chang I, was a formidable commander of the Red Flag Fleet. He had managed to unite the many rival Chinese pirate organizations when he, uh, after he married a 26-year-old Ching Shi. She, uh, of course, was participating fully in her husband's piracy. The story goes that Chang sought his bride out due to her reputation as a shrewd businesswoman. Ching Shi apparently used the secret she learned as a prostitute to wield power over her wealthy and politically connected clients. There are no primary Chinese sources to support this tale, but Ching Shi's financial savvy certainly became undeniable over the course of her career in piracy. It is rumored that she demanded equal control of the pirate fleet as a condition of her marriage to Chang in 1801. Where her business acumen starts to display itself is in the way she became the overall head of the entire confederation. Female pirate leaders were a rare phenomenon, and we are only aware of one other woman commander, a Mrs. Han Cho Lo, who was active in Hong Kong in the first half of the 20th century. Six years into their marriage, Chang I died at the age of 42. Not much is known about how he passed away. Some accounts indicate that he was killed at sea by a tsunami, while others insinuate he was murdered in Vietnam. Regardless of the circumstances, his death left Ching Shi in precarious position. Her husband's adoptive son and heir, Chung Po Sai, was originally to inherit control of the Red Flag fleet, 
Chun Po Sai, however, was more than just Ching Shi's stepson. The young fisherman had also been her husband's lover. Dang! Nope. Nope. Wait. Nope. Thought I had a gasp. Sorry. (laughs) Though a sexual relationship between an adoptive son and his father may seem unusual, the adoption itself was not entirely out of place. Unlike in the West, adult adoption was often practiced in China in order to establish a kinship basis for further interaction, particularly of a business or discipleship sort. Chang adopting an adolescent fisherman's son was not too out of the ordinary. Within weeks of Chang's death, Ching Shi had taken Cheng Po as her lover as well, eventually solidifying the relationship through a strategic marriage. This was her main rival, and she neutered his, uh, his claim immediately by engaging in a relationship with him. Cheng Po would officially head the Red Flag Fleet while Ching Shi took the big chair at the head of the entire confederation and overall operations. As a woman in command of a huge pirate fleet, Ching Shi had her work cut out for her. Pirate vessels often had few women on board, but it is not clear to what extent they were or were not practicing pirates. Unlike in the West, in South China there was no stigma attached to women being on board a ship or being bad luck for a ship. Nevertheless, it would not have been easy for anyone, much less a pirate's widow, to control so many strong-willed outlaws. An East India Company employee named Richard Glasspool was captured by Ching Shi's pirates in September 1809, and he was held until December of that same year. In his account of the ordeal, he estimated there were 80,000 pirates under her command, some 1,000 large junks and 800 smaller junks and rowboats. Ching Shi unified her enormous fleet of pirates using a code of laws. This code was strict and stated that any pirate giving his own orders or disobeying those of a superior was to be beheaded on the spot. You have to rule with an iron fist with that many strong-willed outlaws under your command. The code was particularly unusual in its laws regarding female captives. If a pirate raped a female captive, he would be put to death. If the sex between the two was consensual, both would be put to death. There are further accounts of Ching Shi's code that state that if a pirate took a captive as his wife, he was required to be faithful to her. Whatever they thought about her, it does seem clear that the pirates respected and obeyed her authority. The Red Flag Fleet under Ching Shi's rule went undefeated, despite attempts by the Qing Dynasty officials, the Portuguese Navy, and the East India Company to vanquish it. After three years of notoriety on the high seas, Ching Shi finally retired in 1810 by accepting an offer of amnesty from the Chinese government. At the time of her surrender, she personally commanded 24 ships, and over 1,400 pirates. What precipitated the surrender seems to have been a conflict between the Black and Red Fleets and their leaders, which first led to the surrender of the Black Flag Fleet, and then ultimately to the Red Flag Fleet. At the end of 1809, the tides were turning against Ching Shi and the Pirate Confederation. Guo Podai, leader of the Black Flag Fleet, refused to enforce Ching Shi and Cheng po, uh, reinforce Cheng Shi and Cheng Po during the battle of Tungcheng Bay, and later openly battled with uh, with Cheng Po near Humen. I imagine that giving mounting pressure from the outside for their suppression and the internal loss of cohesion, Ching Shi simply realized that the time had come to make a deal for herself and finally give up her piratical ways. On April 20th, 1810, 
Ching Shi and Cheng Po officially surrendered. Their tally was uh, 17,318 pirates, 226 ships, 1,315 cannons, and uh, 2,798 assorted weapons. Ching Shi surrendered with 24 ships and 1,433 pirates, and Cheng Po was awarded the rank of lieutenant. He was also allowed to retain a private fleet of between 20 and 30 ships. Ching Shi and her crews were officially pardoned, and the men of the crew received pork, wine, and money for their troubles. Ching Shi died in 1844 at the ripe old age of 69. The legacy she left behind from the time of her rule has penetrated popular culture. She even inspired a character in the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, the powerful Mistress Ching, one of the nine pirate lords. While little is known about the years she spent following her retirement, one can only hope she spent her last days in peace and anonymity, away from the harrowing life on the seas where she made her infamous name. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the story of Ching Shi, one of the most famous and successful pirates of all time. And now, at 42 minutes and 20 seconds into this episode, we are going to dive into a song from the O'Reilly's and the Patty Hats. This is Black Sails, and it'll hold you over until we get into the Captain's Film Institute. See you in three minutes and 14 seconds. Waitrain with cannons raging and twirling. 
Night Sales and a Blast. That was the O'Reilly's and the Patty Hats taking us to Black Sales, leading in to the final segment of tonight's show. I can't believe it's taken uh, 41 entries to get this movie into the Captain's Film Institute, but here we are. Uh, there's no real priority on entry. It's just a matter of getting in when the time is right. And tonight, the time is right to enter one of my favorite movies, well, probably the best pirate movie ever made. I'd be happy to be proven wrong on that, if you can, though I think we all know you cannot. Ladies and gentlemen, released in 2003, directed by Gore Verbinski, starring Johnny Depp, Kira Knightley, Orlando Bloom, Jeffrey Rush, based on my favorite Disneyland ride in the history of Disney. This, ladies and gentlemen, is Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. A synopsis pulled from IMDb reads as such. Pirates of the Caribbean is a sweeping action-adventure story set in an era when villainous pirates scavenged the Caribbean seas. This roller coaster tale teams a young blacksmith apprentice, Will Turner, with an unlikely ally in the rogue pirate known as Jack Sparrow. Together they must battle a band of the world's most treacherous pirates, led by the cursed Captain Barbosa. In order to save Elizabeth Swan, governor's daughter, and the love of Will's life, and recover a lost Aztec treasure that Jack Sparrow seeks. Against improbable odds, they race toward a climactic confrontation on the mysterious Isla de la Muerta. Clashing their swords in fierce mortal combat, Will and Jack attempt to recapture the Black Pearl, save Elizabeth Swan, and capture a fortune and forbidden treasure, thereby lifting the curse of the Pirates of the Caribbean. Dun, dun, dun! Dang! Dang! Um, this is a movie that broke the curse of pirate movies. For several decades, it was understood that if you did a movie on water, it was going to, number one, cost you a lot more, and it was almost certainly going to flop. Please, whatever you do, don't go watch Cutthroat Island. Um, this is a movie that I fucking love. I hadn't watched it in a little while, so when I watched it today to prep for this, uh, this show, I, I was just engrossed for like two and a half hours, however long the movie goes. It was amazing. As you guys know, on the Captain's Film Institute, we always pick a favorite character, a favorite scene, and a favorite line. First of all, favorite character, it's got to be fucking Jack Sparrow. Sometimes movies make this hard because either there's too many great characters or just nobody that stands out enough. This is easy. It's Jack Sparrow. This movie belongs to Jack Sparrow. This series, uh, 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 what do you call it? This series of movies belongs to Jack Sparrow. Jack Sparrow, Jack Sparrow, Jack Sparrow. He's it. Uh, Barbosa is a close second. I like Barbosa. He's a lot of fun, but, uh, he's no Jack Sparrow. So Jack gets it. Uh, favorite scene. There's a couple choices for this. This is a movie that's chock full of great scenes. Pick, pick one and you're probably right. Um, the one that I think stands out to me is going, well, it's going to be Jack Sparrow's introduction. He's majestically standing atop his mask with the sun in the background, the sea lapping at his hull. And then as the camera pans out, he jumps down and there's water aboard the boat. A tiny, run-down little skiff. He bails the water out, pays tribute to the executed pirates at the entrance to the Port Royal Harbor. And then, as he, as he sails into the harbor, you see only the response of the people there working on the docks. Pan over to Jack, standing atop his mast again, uh, mast again, looking majestic as he steps off the dock because his boat is sinking. <laughs> 
He speaks to the harbor master, pays his three shillings to not leave a name, and then steals the harbor master's purse on his way past. It tells you everything you need to know about Jack Sparrow the character right away without really any any speaking, without any words. Pretty remarkable. It's a very, very well done scene. Although, to be honest, the entire scene from the introduction of Jack Sparrow um, until he uh, meets Will Turner, essentially, is just a really, really phenomenal, phenomenal piece of film. Um, lots and lots going on, really good stuff. The other scene that I would have chosen as a favorite scene um, is in that same little little beginning segment is Jack going down to the docks, inspecting the interceptor and discussing the Black Pearl with the two red coat guards. Very funny scene, really, really good stuff. Again, really displays what kind of character he is and what he's all about right away and very, very, very clearly. Favorite line. Uh, there were two choices for this one as well. The first of which is one that I've uttered many, many times, uh, typically not in states where I'm clear-headed as I should be. One of them I might be uttering very soon tonight if I keep on this way. Sip of rum! But why is the rum gone? Phenomenal line. It's one I've had shouted at me lots of times as well. Go figure. Uh, bonus choice. This is the backup choice would be um, when Jack and Will go to Tortuga. Find Josamie Gibbs and wake him up with a splash of water while he's napping with his pig friends. Josamie wakes up without even opening his eyes. Curse you for breathing, you slack-jawed idiot. And I just really think that's a great insult, so that's what I went with. (laughs) Now, let's dive into some fun facts I found about this uh, particular movie. I've got about six pages of them, so we're not going to read them all, but we're going to go through and pick my favorites. Um... Johnny Depp, while he was filming this movie, wore contact lenses which served as sunglasses so that he wouldn't have to squint into the sun all the time. I didn't know that was a thing. That was kind of interesting to me. Um, According to the screenwriter's commentary on the DVD, Will Turner is the best swordsman in the film, followed closely by Barbosa and Commodore Norrington, who are evenly matched, and then Jack being the worst. According to the DVD commentaries, Jeffrey Rush has a theory that people watch the screen from left to right, just like when they read a book. Therefore, he tried to be on the left side of the screen as often as possible. He was particularly intent on doing this in scenes that he shared with the monkey and with Kira Knightley, because he didn't think anybody would look at him otherwise. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a savvy move. That's a man who knows his filmmaking. Um, with the Captain's Film Institute, we always like to find moments of improvisation. I found a really unique one in this film. At around the one hour and 30 minute mark in the movie, the monkey, called Jack, is seen smiling when Barbosa thanks him specifically after he returns the Aztec coin. Uh, In the special features on the DVD, it is revealed that the monkey did this purely by chance. It was not planned out. They They didn't expect that to happen. He handed the coin back. He let out a smile. They captured it on film. It made for a memorable moment. Uh, Some more improv. Johnny Depp improvised Jack Sparrow's famous catchphrase, Savvy? And basically, anytime you hear Jack Sparrow talking about Unix, that was also improvisation by Johnny Depp. (laughs) A little historical fact. The East India Company, the real-life counterpart of the film franchise's East India Trading Company, really did brand pirates with a P. But instead of being put on their forearm, it was put on their forearm. Head. Um, this is the 10th highest grossing film franchise in the history of movies. Take that for what you will. 
Um, here's an interesting one. We always like to look at alternate casting, and we have a few really interesting ones as we go about this movie here. Um, Robert De Niro was offered the role of Captain Jack Sparrow, but he declined, thinking that the movie wouldn't do well because so many other pirate movies had failed. After he was proven wrong, he accepted the role of Captain Shakespeare in the movie Stardust from 2007. What about some other alternate casting options? Well, when casting the role of Will Turner, it was down to two people. Gore Verbinski had to choose between Orlando Bloom and Heath Ledger. He chose Bloom because he had heard he was in the Lord of the Rings trilogy and he felt that would be a more bankable choice. Uh, Ted Elliott and Terry uh, Rossio, the writers of the movie, uh, said that they uh, they wrote the script in the early 1990s and Steven Spielberg got his, his hands on it. Spielberg wanted to direct the film himself with Bill Murray, Steve Martin, or Robin Williams playing Captain Jack Sparrow. Unfortunately, Disney did not give permission to make the film. But can you imagine what this movie would have been like if it had been made in the 90s with Bill Murray, Steve Martin, or Robin fucking Williams? Talk about a missed opportunity, huh? Writer and co-creator Stuart Beadle wrote the part of Jack Sparrow with Hugh Jackman in mind. The character's first name was even a nod to the actor's last. However, Disney did not feel Jackman was a big enough star for the part, so it was eventually offered to Depp. This was also considered to be a commercial risk because Johnny Depp, although a respected actor, was hardly a bankable star at the time. Of course, we know that the, the, uh, the gamble did pay off. Matthew McConaughey was also uh, in talks to be Jack Sparrow. And uh, Michael Keaton, Jim Carrey, and Christopher Walken were all mentioned, mentioned as well. Elizabeth Swan was almost played by the likes of Amanda Bynes, Jessica Alba, or Jamie Alexander. So you can see a lot of a lot of ways this. Ooh, excuse me. You can see a lot of ways that this movie could have gone a very very different direction. Uh, pretty interesting stuff. Johnny Depp took a lot of liberties with this role. He really had a vision for who Jack Sparrow was, and he went with it sometimes without asking for any permission first. Johnny Depp's character, Jack, uh, Captain Jack, is portrayed as having gold teeth in the film. The gold teeth were Depp's idea, but he predicted that executives would want fewer gold teeth. So he told his dentist on his own to implant more gold teeth as a bargaining tool. Sparrow's final number of gold teeth in the film was what Depp had envisioned all along. So he, uh, he went in over, and then he worked his way right back. <laughs> oh, that's kind of crazy. Um, there was an actual shipwreck involved in this film, which I don't know if you know about, but a true-to-life pirate shipwreck. When returning from a night shoot on one of the Caribbean islands, Kira Knightley's boat struck a reef and went down. The only people aboard were Knightley, her mother, and the boat's skipper, all of whom escaped unharmed, thankfully, and were rescued within just a few hours after being stranded on a small island. However, the incident ultimately determined that the rest of the island night shoots would be filmed in a studio rather than on location. Now, the question you may have yourself is, why was Kira Knightley's mother with her? Well, because Kira Knightley, when she filmed this movie, was only 17 years old. Pretty remarkable. The island on which Jack and Elizabeth are left is called Petite Tabac. It's a part of Tobago Cays, which is a popular sailing destination comprising of five uninhabited islands. When a Finnish sailing crew visited the island in January of 2003, not too long after filming completed, they discovered a pile of debris and burned uh, palm tree leaves. They were not aware that this had been a recent movie set. Uh, Chip and Salsa play the parrot that talks for the pirate named Mr. Cotton. 
whose tongue was cut out in a disagreement. Only one bird appears at a time, but both birds play the same character. Chip, performed in most of the scenes where the pirate was, was required to sit patiently on a character's shoulder, while Salsa performed most of the tricks, and when a scene required more animation, such as flying. So um, the reason I include that little fun fact is because as I was reading about this movie, I saw that and thought, wow, so there are parrot versions of the Olsen twins. <laughs> um, now, there were some real pirates on the set of the film as well. After uh, filming had concluded, the Treasure Cave set had been ransacked of its props uh, before production had officially wrapped. Johnny Depp mentions that he and his daughter walked away with a lot of the treasure from that set. And Gore Verbinski mentions that none of the cursed coins were left when everybody was done ransacking the treasure cave. Uh, bu- 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 researching pirates uh, early on, Johnny Depp discovered that in their day they were re- regarded as rock stars. This led him to his now famous interpretation of Jack Sparrow as an 18th century Keith Richards. At the first read-through of the script, Depp surprised everyone with his broad portrayal as it wasn't anything close to what they expected. Disney executives were initially resistant, thinking the character was either drunk or gay, with Disney CEO Michael Eisner concerned that Deb was, quote, ruining the film. Which, of course, he did not do. He spawned a franchise that is still running well to this day. Jeffrey Rush was adamant about choreographing and practicing the sword-fighting scenes to the point that the stunt team would become sick of dealing with him. Likewise, Depp believes Sparrow to have a Muhammad Ali approach to sword fighting, keeping his arms down and letting his opponent come to him. Least amount of energy used for the maximum level of results is the character's general thought on most things. I have seen this movie 25 times at least, probably a few more than that. Uh, There are some things I have never mentioned that I learned about while I was researching this film. Gore Verbinski mentions that there are so many flubs in the film because they were working on such a tight schedule uh, that most people still, to this day, haven't noticed. He said there are several shots that have crew members in frame and that that no one, to his knowledge, has pointed out before. Uh, There were even moments in the filming where uh, Gore Verbinski would purposely uh, frame Johnny Depp out of a scene since his performance as Jack Sparrow was much too strong. (laughs) Um... Final thoughts here as we close out the episode, uh, close out the Captain's Film Institute here. Um, <clears throat> the CGI in this film really, really holds up. I mean, you're, you're talking 20 years later, and this, this movie has better CGI than a lot of what we see today as far as fitting the theme and the, and the feel of the movie. Um, this is one of those movies that has a lot of humor, has a lot of fun, that's paired with some good spookiness, some good action scenes, a little bit of a love story going on. It's got a little bit of everything. Um, Without question, it's one of the greatest pirate movies in history, if not the greatest. Um, That's it. That's it. There we go. That's the end of the Captain's Film Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, Nonsense the Show, episode 306 at one hour and 32 seconds. I'm so glad you decided to join us today. Thank you so much, as always, for coming to Nonsense the Show. If you enjoy the show, support us on patreon.com backslash nonsense the show. Every dollar helps. Uh, Beardandbones, gmail.com. Beardandbones, Instagram. Thanks so much. See y'all next time. I love you. Bye-bye now.
Hey, guys. Hey, Hi. thanks for coming. Sorry I'm late. I just got caught up watching the Pirates of the Caribbean marathon. Have you seen those things? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah those. Those, are, those are great. Well, I checked out the track, and I loved it. And I wrote you this big, sexy hook I think you're going to really dig. Oh, wow, that's great. Awesome. So should we just lay it down? Boys, let's get to it, to it, to it. Oh! 